0: Welcome to tape number four of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing, and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with chapter 6, of tape, this is tape 4, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. The opening of the second seal furnishes occasion for the second animal to cry, Come and see. It is the customary business of faithful ministers to invite the disciples of Christ TO A CONTEMPLATION OF HIS PROVIDENTIAL PROCEDURE. COME, BEHOLD THE WORKS OF THE LORD. Psalm 46.8 This is the call of the ministry represented by the symbol of the cap, or young ox. Patient continuance in well-doing is the special duty of Christ's servants in times of suffering. And such seems to be the import of the emblem, the red horse. By the horse, singly considered, we are to understand a dispensation of providence, So we are to view it as a symbol in Zechariah 1.8 and Zechariah 6, verses 1-8. The prophet said, O my Lord, what are these? And the man answered, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. We speak familiarly of a dispensation of the gospel, the white horse. Our attention is now called to a red horse, fury, as the word imports. The character of the dispensation is thus indicated as bloody. War should prevail so as to take peace from the earth. They should kill one another. The instrument of slaughter is seen a great sword. Mutual slaughter does not seem to harmonize with the idea of persecution by which the saints only are killed all the day long. History records that insurrections, battles, massacres, and devastations of an extraordinary kind took place in the first half of the second century, by which more than half a million of the Jews perished by the hands of the pagan, and a still greater number on the opposite side were slain by the Jews. Thus, the two parties who rivaled each other in opposing the gospel and the progress of Christ's kingdom were made by him the instruments of their mutual destruction. For he it is who directs the movement and course of providence, the red horse. Behold what desolation he hath made in the earth. In this text, says an eminent expositor, earth signifies the Roman Empire. Daniel, whose sealed prophecy is explained by the opening of the apolitical l- l- seals, d- denominates the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom upon earth. We humbly suggest that this does not render the Roman Empire synonymous with earth any more than the Chaldean, Persian, or Grecian. And indeed, the monarchs of those empires put forth as extensive claims to universal empire as ever the Caesars did. The word earth is to be interpreted always by the context. Like the term world, it may sometimes signify the Roman Empire as Luke 2, verse 1. But in other cases, even the apocalypse, It is not to be so understood without manifest confusion as in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. The contents of all the vials are there said to be poured out upon the earth, but earth is afterwards the special object of the first only. It follows that this term cannot be uniformly and safely in this book interpreted as identical with and limited by the Roman Empire the importance of accuracy here may become more apparent in our future progress. Verse 5 and 6, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard a third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The third of the four animals calls attention to the disclosures made by breaking the third seal. He had a face as a man, chapter 4, verse 7, indicating, as already said, active sympathy, affectionate counsel, and seasonable exhortation in calamitous times. Christian ministers need the tongue of the learned to speak a word in season to him that is weary when the judgments of God are abroad in the earth, for some of these press most sensibly on the poor. Such is the character of the dispensation symbolized by the black horse. Scarcity of bread is the judgment represented here by the combined symbols. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Lamentation 5.10, Zechariah 6.2. The writer had a pair of balances in his hand. The word translated balances, literally rendered, signifies a yoke, pair, couple. In popular use, it came to signify an instrument for weighing commodities from the counterpoising double scales. This symbol indicated famine, that people should eat bread by weight and with care. Ezekiel 4.16, and this is confirmed by the voice in the midst of the four animals, a measure of wheat for a penny, etc. The quantity of food and the price, as here announced, would seem to the English reader to express plenty and cheapness. But when it is understood that the measure of wheat was the ordinary allowance for a laboring man and a penny the usual wages for one day, and little more than a quart for about fifteen cents, It may be asked, how could a laboring man procure food and clothing for himself, his wife, and his children? It is said that three times the quantity of barley could be had for the same money, but being a coarser and less nutritious grain, it would reach but little farther in sustaining a family. Famine usually falls heaviest on the middle and lower classes of society. Even in such times the rich fare sumptuously every day. Accordingly, the oil and the wine, some of the staple productions of Canaan, are exempted from the providential blight sent upon the necessaries of life. Genesis 43, verse 11. According to history, from the year 138 till near the end of the second century, a general scarcity of provisions was felt, notwithstanding all the care and foresight of emperors and their ministers to anticipate the scourge. The pharaohs on the throne had no Joseph to lay up and store in the years of plenty. But when our New Testament Joseph would thus fight against the persecutors of his saints by the judgment of famine, he gave previous intimation here to his disciples of the approaching calamity, as his manner is to his own. Luke 21, verses 20-22. Verses 7 and 8. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to to go to the house of feasting, according to the judgment of the wisest of mere men. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. And so we are invited here by a spiritually minded ministry, like a flying eagle. A scene of lamentation, mourning, and woe is disclosed at the opening of the fourth seal. All the symbols betoken augmented severity in the judgments. There is pestilence added to the sword and famine. The pale horse or livid green is the emblem of pestilence. The mediator conducts the destroying angel to fulfill the will of God. Before him went the pestilence, and by a combination of awful symbols, the king of terrors, death, is represented as slaying his victims, and hell followed with him, satiated with his prey. Sword, hunger, death, and beast of the earth were commissioned to lay waste the fourth part of the then known world. If we are to interpret the beast of the earth literally, then we may easily perceive how the depopulation produced by the other calamities would make way for their increase and destructive ravages. But if we understand these beasts as symbolizing the persecuting powers, then adding these to all the other destructive agencies, especially to the pale horse, the chief symbol in the group, we may readily perceive the force of the combined emblems, a concentrating, as it were, of all destroying agencies, Historians inform us that a pestilence arising from Ethiopia went through all the provinces of Rome and wasted them for fifteen years. This added to the sword of war and persecution which lasted sixty years, according to some interpreters, or from 211 to 270 A.D., would seem to exhaust the events symbolized by the series of the seals except the seventh, so far as, at least as the sufferings of the Church are concerned. For under the fifth and sixth seals, as will appear, nothing of a calamitous nature befalls the righteous. Verses 9 to 11 And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? and white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. At the opening of the fifth seal, none of the four animals calls attention to its contents. This fact may indicate that no new development of providence is intended, but rather the effects of the preceding three produced upon the church and saints of god as the sixth discloses the penalty inflicted on his and their enemies john saw the souls of them that were slain souls are visible only in vision chapter 20 verse 4 these souls were not slain but they were the souls of them the persons that were slain matthew 10:28 the enemy could kill the body only an essential part of the human person although the chief aim was to kill the soul the ground of their suffering was the same as that of John, chapter one, verse nine, and from the first of this honored class, Abel, mentioned in the Bible, to the last, Antipas, the cause is the same, and the distinguished name is the name. And the distinguished name is the same. They are martyrs for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And however tenaciously a person may hold other principles, even though he should die for them, he is not a martyr. The aphorism is true. It is, excuse me, it is not suffering for religion, but the cause that makes the martyr, suffering unto death from love to the truth as it is in Jesus. These souls were under the altar in allusion still to the outward means of grace under the Old Testament economy. It is not very material, perhaps, whether we understand the altar for sacrifice or that for incense. The comfortable doctrines often taught in the stricture Scriptures are here illustrated. First, that the redemption of the sinner is by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Second, that after death, especially for martyrdom, the soul is safe under the altar in fellowship with the Savior. Third, that the soul made perfect in holiness retains a deep conviction that vengeance belongs to God. Chapters 18, verse 20 and chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Forth, that the spirits of just men made perfect both desire and need instruction relative to the future evolution of the divine purposes. Adoring the infinite perfections of God, acknowledging his holiness, and acquiescing in his faithfulness, they cannot but desire a farther display of his vindicative and distributive justice as indispensable to the manifestation of the divine glory the vindication of the claims of the divine government, the asserting of their injured rights, and the completing of their eternal felicity. Accordingly, we find their earnest plea admitted. It was said unto them that they should rest. Their repose can never be disturbed. The white robes in which they are arrayed are not spun out of their own bowels like the spider's web, either by their services or sufferings. They are the well-known emblems of the imputed righteousness of their Redeemer. Fine linen, clean and white, the only righteousness of saints. Chapter 19, verse 8 Persecution did not terminate under the preceding seals. Others, their fellow servants and brethren, should be killed as they were. The honorable role of martyrs was not yet completed. The little season is a very indefinite period in our mode of computation. But with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, Second Peter 3, verse 8. This season seems to comprehend the whole period of persecution. Now, as we shall see, the Roman Empire, whether pagan or Christian, is still a ravenous beast devouring Jacob. The policy of Rome pagan was to dictate the state religion. The idol gods of the conquered provinces were generally adopted and enrolled among those of the pantheon. There was a niche for any and every God but Jacob's God. As he would permit no rival, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 23, and Isaiah 42, verse 8, so the populace would have none of him, Acts 16, 19 to 21. Such we will find to be the policy of Rome, Christian. There is no communion between light and darkness, verses 12 to 17. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The sixth seal is opened, like the rest, by the hand of the Mediator, and here his right hand teaches terrible things. By terrible things and righteousness will thou answer us, O God of our salvation. Psalm 65, verse 5 The awesome scene disclosed would seem to be a beginning of answer to the importunate, importunate cry of the souls under the altar, as in the foregoing vision. Many expositors since the time of Cyprian in the 3rd century have understood this seal as disclosing the scene of the Last Judgment. No doubt the symbols here employed are suited to that event. But the series of seals, trumpets, and vials, not to speak of events still more remote, wholly precludes such an interpretation. All the symbols under the sixth seal betoken revolution, such as their established and well-known import in other parts of Scripture. The earthquake is more than a shaking of the earth. It is a concussion of the heavens also. As Haggai is interpreted by Paul, we learn the civil and ecclesiastical change of the Jewish polity by the shaking of the heavens and the earth. Haggai 2, verse 6, in Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. The day of final judgment is so often referred to as certain that no special prediction was needed to assure us of that event. Indeed, the description of the day of judgment is commonly employed by the prophets to represent revolutions among the nations. So it is in reference to the overthrow of Babylon, Isaiah thirteen thirteen of Egypt, Ezekiel thirty two seven and eight of Jerusalem, Matthew twenty four seven and twenty nine. The sun, moon, and stars are emblems of civil officers, supreme and subordinate, as well as of military commanders. Their consternation and despair, now that they are cast down from their exalted position, as heavenly luminaries darken and hurled from their orbits, betray their apprehension of deserved and inevitable wrath. Indeed, we may view the last three verses of this chapter as exegetical or explanatory of the preceding three. The whole frame of imperial power underwent a change which is commonly called a revolution and the grandeur of the complex symbols borrowed from the closing scene of time was never more appropriately employed by the spirit of prophecy than in the present instance to portray the total overthrow of pagan power, idolatry, and tyranny. The most conspicuous instrument in the mediator's hand by which this great revolution was effected is well known in history as Constantine the Great. The great lights of the heathen world, the powers civil and ecclesiastical, were not eclipsed, but extinguished. Heathen priests and augurs were extirpated, and idolatrous temples were closed. Christianity was professed by the emperor himself, and his authority exerted for its recognition and diffusion throughout his dominions. Thus did the God of Israel avenge his own elect, who cried to him night and day from under the altar, and thus did he afford unto them a season of rest. Constantine, however, was more of a politician than divine. To the student of history he will appear in many respects a striking prototype of William Prince of Orange, who on a less extended scale answers as an antitype in the latter part of the 17th century. Neither of them exemplified in their lives the power of godliness. Like Charles II, they did not consider primitive apostolic Christianity a religion for a gentleman. Constantine combined in his character the properties of the lion and the fox. He was crafty and ambitious. Usurping the prerogatives of Zion's king, he assumed a blasphemous supremacy over the church and proceeded to model her external polity after the example of the empire. Among the Christian ministry, he found mercenary spirits who pandered to his ambition, having his person in admiration because of advantage. Advancing these to positions of opulence and splendor, he could certainly rely upon them to support him in his schemes of aggrandizement. Thus, the mystery of iniquity whose working Paul discovered in his time was nurtured in its full development in heaven's appointed time, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and following, if on such occasions mighty kings and valiant generals are stricken with dismay, what shall be the terror of all the impenitent enemies of the Lord and His anointed when the heavens and the earth shall pass away and leave them with these imagine, without these imaginary hiding places from the wrath of the Lamb? Chapter seven. The scenes portrayed by various symbols in this chapter are by some considered as a continuation of the sixth seal. We think they may with more propriety be viewed as relating to the events under the four which precede, while they are obviously preparatory for the opening of the last seal in the next chapter. Verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. The four angels represent the instruments of providence. The four corners of the earth intend all nations of the world as then known in geography. Chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. The holding of the winds is emblematical of the tranquility consequent upon the accession of Constantine to the imperial throne, the temporary cessation of desolating wars and persecutions, the rest, for which the martyrs prayed, thou callest in trouble, and I delivered thee. psalm eighty one verse seven. And I saw verse two through three, and I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels in whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, "Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God. In their foreheads. Another angel, having the seal of the living God, can be none other but the Lord Christ. His people are sealed unto the day of redemption with that Holy Spirit of promise, or promised Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians one twenty-two, Ephesians one thirteen. He came from the east. There the Son of Righteousness arose upon a dark world, and his beams enlightened the kingdoms of Europe, in which multitudes were effectually called during this tranquil period. Chapter 14, verse 1. This angel, as having sovereign authority over the earth and sea, and from whom the four angels had their commission, now commands them not to hurt the earth and the sea, till he and his ministers, the instruments of his grace, had sealed the servants of God. This sealing, while symbolizing baptism, signifies especially the saving work of the eternal spirit by which its subjects are to be, and actually are, preserved from apostasy in future and trying times. We shall meet with them again. Chapter 14, verse 1 The favor shown by Constantine to Christian ministers and converts induced multitudes to make a profession of Christianity and, of course, filled the church with hypocrites, the flattery of those in power had often proved as detrimental to the church's spiritual prosperity as their frowns. Daniel 11:32. Still, the special design of this ceiling seems to be the preservation of a chosen remnant, the witnesses during the period of the trumpets when Antichrist should be fully organized. Verses four through eight. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand, of the trial of Naphtali were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Manasseh and Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. The number sealed was 140 and 4,000. Of each tribe, twelve thousand. These numbers are not to be taken literally, but comparatively, as contradistinguished from another company. Chapter five, verse nine. Neither do we suppose, with many expositors, that Jews by nation are here exclusively intended. At the time referred to in the fifth century, the middle wall of partition had been long removed. Ephesians two, fourteen. Jews and Gentiles were all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians three, twenty eight. There is no ground to suppose that exactly the same number would be sealed of every tribe, besides all the original tribes are not named. Dan is not among them and Judah is first in order in Reuben's place. The gates of the heavenly Jerusalem are inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Chapter 22, verse 12. In a word, this sealed company is composed of Jews and Gentiles representing the whole number of true believers who were enabled by grace to hold fast their profession in trying times and who experienced more special protection in perilous times. Ezekiel 9, verses 4 to 6, verses 9 to 12. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be unto our God, forever and ever. Amen. The great multitude, which no man could number, are evidently distinguished from the number sealed. They are collected from all the nations known at that time. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb as accepted worshipers, ascribing salvation not to their own merit, but to the free grace of God the Father, and the oblation and intercession of the Lamb. They are now in a triumphant state, as indicated by the palms in their hands, the usual emblems of victory. White robes bespeak their justification. All the angels in heaven signify their hearty assent to the praises of the redeemed by saying Amen. Then, in an attitude of profoundest reverence, they celebrate the praises of God in strains proper, though not peculiar to themselves. As in chapter 5, verse 11, the angels in this place are disposed and arranged in the outer circle of all the intelligent worshippers. Redeemed sinners stand nearest to the throne in virtue of their union to Christ, while holy angels, without envy, contemplate with rapturous emotions the displays of the manifold wisdom of God in His dealing with the church. Ephesians 3, verse 10. Thus we may learn to do the will of God on earth as it is done by the angels in heaven. Verses 13 to 17. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Please turn the tape over at this time and continue listening on side two. One of the elders asked John, not for information, but to engage his attention. What are these, and whence came they? Ministers may often receive instruction from the members of the church. This elder answers his own questions as the angel did to the prophet, Zechariah 4, 5, and 6. These are the great multitude, probably the same whose souls John saw at the opening of the fifth seal, but now appearing in a new aspect, for it is evident that they had been engaged in war. This appears by the palms of victory. They had been in great tribulation prior to the peaceful reign of Constantine by Satan's temptations, the spoiling of their goods, imprisonment of their persons, and the sacrifice of their lives, not loving their lives unto the death. All these tribulations, however, could not separate them from the love of God. Romans eight thirty-seven to 39 They had washed their robes, not in penitential tears, their own martyr blood, their doings or sufferings in the cause of Christ, But their robes were made white in the blood of the Lamb, who was made of God unto them justification and sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Could the human mind conceive the idea of rendering linen garments white by washing them in blood? Never, unless as suggested by the doctrine of Christ crucified, whose blood cleanses from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Therefore are they before the throne of God without fault before his throne. Chapter 14, verse 5. Delivered from the tempestuous storms of war and the scorching heat of persecution, they are safe in the haven of eternal rest. Not only are they forever freed from the sensation of hunger or thirst, but they shall drink of the living waters of excuse me, living fountains of waters proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Chapter 22, verse 1. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are the pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16:11. While this company brought out of great tribulation to which they had been subjected, subjected in the centuries before the time of Constantine, are represented as in possession of eternal blessedness, the other company of the sealed ones are by this mark furnished with the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit to enter the list with the dragon in a much more trying and prolonged contest. The latter company, although preceding the other in the other of symbolic revelation, do really in the order of time succeed them in continuing continuation of the struggle with the powers of darkness. And here we make a general remark, that nearly throughout the Apocalypse the two parties, whom we may call the powers of darkness and the children of light, often change their relative positions and assume different aspects. And in this there is nothing new as appears in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, and chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 8 Hitherto our observations have been brief because interpreters are very generally agreed in their views of the first series, the seals, in this interesting book of prophecy. The first six seals, covering the time of heathen Rome's opposition to Christianity, and before the devil succeeded in enlisting the nominal church of Christ in his interest, do not therefore furnish occasion for much controversy among expositors. Besides, the seventh seal covers much more time than all the others. The first six excuse me, the seventh seal covers much more time than all the others. The first six referred to pagan Rome and constitute the first period properly styled the period of the seals. The seventh seal seal introducing the trumpets is the second period called the period of the trumpets. In attempting to unfold their mystical import, greater amplification will be indispensable. Verse 1 And when he had opened the seventh steel, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Heaven is the ordinary symbol of organized society, whether civil or ecclesiastical, or both. Silence in heaven for half an hour indicates public tranquility, together with anxious and mute expectation of coming and alarming events. Half an hour, a definite for an indefinite duration, as usual, imports that the repose hitherto enjoyed shall shortly terminate. The respite which the saints enjoyed during the period succeeding the revolution indicated by the opening of the sixth seal soon came to an end. Verses 2-4 to four. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Seven angels appeared to John, as ministers standing before God, ready to execute His commands. To them were given seven trumpets. Here, as all along hitherto, there is allusion to the former dispensation. Under the Old Testament, trumpets were constructed by divine direction and to be used for diverse purposes. Of the manifold uses of this tr- instrument, that which is here chiefly intended is to sound an alarm. Joel 2, 1, and 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. Whilst all this suspense and before the silence is broken by the sounding of the first trumpet, the worship of God is exemplified after the usual manner. An angel, by his official place and work, easily distinguished from those having the trumpets, holds in his hand a golden censer, that with much incense he might render acceptable the prayers of all saints." As the angel who had the seal of the living God is distinguished from those that held the winds, chapter 7, verse 1, so is he here from those that had the trumpets. Here he appears as the great high priest over the house of God and as the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the same at the time of incense, Luke 1, 10. So the service of God is thus emblematically represented as conducted according to divine appointment. This angel, therefore, is Christ himself. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. He is the only advocate with the Father, and through him we have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Ephesians 2.18 May we not inquire without presumption a little into the nature or purport of the prayers of all saints at this time of ominous silence? And what could so likely be the burden of their petitions as that of the cry of the souls under the altar, namely the destruction of the Roman Empire. Surely this had been the prayer of God's persecuted servants in all ages. Pour out thy fury upon the heathen. Jeremiah 10.25 and Psalm 79.6 However inconsistent with Christian charity superficial Christians may deem the law of retaliation, we shall find it often urged on our attention as exemplified in this book. It is absolutely essential to the divine government. Verse 5 And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. The Lord Jesus, in carrying out the designs of the divine mind and executing the commission which he received from the Father as mediator, appears in various characters. Whilst as a priest he intercedes for his people, and by the incense from the golden censer renders their prayers acceptable before God. As a king, he answers their prayers by terrible things and righteousness. Psalm 65, verse 5 This work of vengeance is vividly signified by scattering coals of fire on the earth. From the very same altar, whence the glorious angel of the covenant had received fire to consume the incense, he next takes coals, the symbols of his wrath, and scatters them into the earth. These burning coals of juniper produce voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. O oh God, Thou art terrible out of Thy holy places. Psalm 68:35, Psalm 76, verse 12 The Lord our God is a jealous God. Our merciful Savior once put a strange and startling question to His disciples. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, for ends worthy of himself, the only wise God has unchangeably decreed that offenses must needs come, Matthew 18, verse 7, and there must also be heresies among professing Christians, 1 Corinthians 11:19. However, in the administration of prov- providence, judgment without mercy awaits every nation to which the gospel is sent in vain. The voices, thunderings, consequent upon the scattering of the coals, portended the calamities which would be inflicted upon men for their opposition to the gospel and cruel treatment of the saints in answer to their prayers through the intercession of Christ. Verse 6. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The seven angels now prepare themselves to sound. The first alarm, of course, will put an end to the silence. It should be noted that while each seal, when broken, disclosed so much of the role of the book as was concealed by it, the seventh leaves no part unrevealed. The whole contents are laid open. It is otherwise with the trumpets. The reverberations of one may not have ceased when the next begins to sound. Thus, several may be partly cotemporary. Again, it may be questioned whether mankind are to be considered in civil or ecclesiastical organization as the formal object of the judgments indicated by the trumpets. Some expositors view the one and some the other as the object, and the contention has been sharp among them. We humbly suggest that neither is the formal object without the other, simply because the same individuals constitute the complex moral person. The correctness of this view is largely illustrated and abundantly confirmed in the subsequent part of the Apocalypse. Provinces, nations, empires are no farther worthy of notice in prophecy than as they affect the destiny of the church and illustrate the immutable principles of the moral government of God. He is known by the judgments which he executes, and nations must be taught that the heavens do rule. Daniel 4.26 Although the church and the state are, by divine institution, distinct, not united, They are nevertheless coordinate and always exert a reciprocal influence for good or for evil. It has been the policy of Satan to confound this distinction and, alas, with too much success in the apprehension of many. There are not wanting divines who boldly assert that even among the Jews under the Old Testament the church was the state and the state was the church. We may have occasion to notice hereafter that this gross error and anti-christian dogma is yet entertained in relation to divinely organized society under the present new testament economy the voices thunderings and earthquakes resulting from the scattering of the coals are the harbingers and precursors of coming calamities upon christendom at the sounding of the trumpets and these may be emblematic of the contentions, strife and divisions which accompanied the rise and prevalence of the heresy of Arius in the apostasy of the Emperor Julian during the time of comparative public tranquility from Constantine to Theodosius. The church and the state as one complex system we have considered as the object of the judgments to be inflicted under the judgment, excuse me, under the trumpets these had in fact become incorporated if not identified under the reign of constantine and his imperial successors but assuming the correctness of the phraseology of secular historians and christian expositors when in a popular sense they speak of the roman empire as the subject as the object of penal inflictions We by no means agree with the latter class of writers when they limit the empire to the geographical boundaries as it existed at the time of this prediction. This mistake, if not detected here, will materially affect and control our views of the whole subsequent part of the apocalypse. Who would not discover the impropriety and absurdity of treating of events now transpiring within the empire of the United States as if falling out within the limits of the original Thirteen as they existed in 1776. But the Roman Empire yet exists, and we have sufficient evidence that it will continue till the time of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Chapter 11, verse 15 Political bias has prevailed with one class of expositors to exempt the British Empire from the stroke of God's wrath, symbolized by both the trumpets and violence. Others from similar predilections would exempt the United States and British provinces from these plagues, whilst a third class giving false scope to the hallucinations of mere imaginations aver their conviction that Republican America is the special and doomed object of all these plagues. Hence, the necessity of caution, sobriety, reverence for divine authority, reliance on the teaching of the Holy Spirit... Whom the Savior has promised to His humble disciples to guide them into all truth and to show them things to come, John 16:13. That the student of prophecy, especially of the Apocalypse, may realize the fulfillment of this promise, it is indispensably necessary that he be absolutely untrammeled by all anti-Christian politics. Such cases are very rare. Chapter 13, verse 3. During the reign of Constantine, that monarch had transferred the capital of the empire from the city of Seven Hills to another locality and founded another metropolis, which as the future seat of imperial rule, and to immortalize himself he called after his own name, Constantinople. Constantinople. This ambitious enterprise itself virtually divided the empire, preparing the way for its total dismemberment by the trumpets and now the seven angels prepared themselves to sound, for all things are ready. The interceding angel at the golden altar had prevailed to obtain a period of tranquility whilst preparatory steps are in progress towards the next series of events, but that same time shall be no longer or respite from immediate judgment. is signified. Significantly intimated by the symbolic angel casting his golden censer from his hand and hurling it into the earth. Then, without farther delay, verse 7, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. The first angel sounded. The object of this judgment is the earth, the population of the empire in general. The judgment itself is hail and fire mingled with blood, desolating wars like successive storms of hail mingled with lightning, hailstones and coals of fire. Psalm 17, 18, verse 12. The effect is a consumption of a third part of the trees and grass, people in high and low degrees. Green trees and grass are the ornaments and products of the land. Mm-hmm and when the earth is an emblem of nations and dominions, trees and grass may represent persons of higher and lower rank. The careful student of the apocalypse will discover a striking analogy between the effects of the trumpets and vials as the latter are presented in the 16th chapter. The first trumpet, therefore, produces an effect upon the social order of Christendom, which will continue till the pouring out of the first vial. As the Roman Empire, in its twofold division, is the general object of all the trumpets, so the first four are directed towards the western and the next two against the eastern member. The infidel historian, Gibbon, has unwittingly recorded the fulfillment of these predictions, as Josephus had done those of our Lord respecting the destruction of Jerusalem. Unconscious that he was bearing testimony to the truth of prophecy, Gibbon, used with his classic pen the very allegorical language of the inspired apostle. Respecting the incursion of the barbarous Goths as led by Alaric, their chief, into the fertile plains of southern Europe, he described their alarming descent as a dark cloud which, having collected along the coast of the Baltic, burst in thunder upon the banks of the upper Danube. He who directed Balaam and Caiaphas to utter predictions doubtless could direct Josephus and Gibbon to attest the truth of prophecy, and this may be one of the many ways in which he uses the wrath of man to praise him. The Goths, the Scythians, and the Huns, first under Alaric and afterwards under Attila, those savage warriors from the northern regions, invaded the provinces of the Roman Empire in both sections, carrying all before them like an irresistible tornado, tornado, with fire and sword utterly destroying cities, temples, princes, priests, old and young, male and female, thus burning up trees and green grass. Verses 8 and 9 And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and the third part of the ships were destroyed the second angel sounded the object of this judgment is the sea as a great collection of waters this symbol is explained in chapter 17:15 peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues indicate the population in an agitated and disorganized or revolutionary condition. The judgment is a burning mountain, a tremendous object, consuming and being itself consumed. The mountain is a symbol of earthly power, civil or military, and sometimes ecclesiastical. Who art thou, O great mountain? Zechariah 4, 7. The Almighty says to thee, king of Babylon, Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain. I will roll thee down from the rocks, and will make thee a burnt mountain. Jeremiah fifty-one twenty-five, Psalm 48, verse 2. The consequence of this judgment is the third part of the sea became blood, the fish perished, and the shipping was destroyed. Similar language illustrating these figurative expressions has been used by the prophets to represent divine judgments. Denounced against Egyptian power, Ezekiel twenty-nine three and following. In the eighth verse is contained the explanation of the symbolic language. Behold, I will bring a sword upon thee and cut off man and beast from thee. History verifies this part of the apocalypse prediction. Excuse me. History verifies this part of the apocalyptic prediction. Only two years after the death of that northern scourge of God. Attila, who boasted that the grass never grew where his horse had trod, Genseric set sail from the burning shores of Africa, and like a burning mountain launched into the sea, accompanied by a vast army of barbarous vandals, suddenly landed his fleet at the mount of the river Tiber. Disregarding the distinctions of rank, age, or sex, these licentious and brutal plunderers subjected their helpless victims to every species of indignity and cruelty. Hence, the hostility to arts and science, the tokens of refined civilization, indiscriminate devastations of life and property perpetrated by the savage warriors, has given rise to the word vandalism. Verses 10 and 11. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. The object of the third trumpet is the waters as before, the population of the empire, but not in collective form as a sea, rather in a state of separation or disconnected as rivers and fountains. Some apply this symbol of a falling star, to Genseric, but this is incongruous. On the contrary, he was a victorious prince, a rising star. It is more consonant to the truth of history and the chronological sense of prophecy to apply this symbol to the downfall of Momulus, M-O-M-Y-L-L-U-S, the last of the Roman emperors, who was deposed by... Odisser, O D O A C E R, king of the Heruli, H E R U L I, called in derision Augustalus, the diminutive Augustus. Doubtless the allusion here is to the king of Babylon. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, Lucifer day star, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Isaiah 14, verse 12. A star may indeed signify either a civil or ecclesiastical officer, but the scope and context determine all these judgments to the enemies of the Church and those of her illustrious head. It is the vengeance of his temple. We have already found a star, the emblem of the gospel minister, and we shall hereafter find it employed in that sense, but it does not seem to refer in the present connection to any apostate. The name of this star, Wormwood, embittering the waters, is a lively emblem of the miseries experienced by the people in the use of the remaining temporal comforts which the preceding calamities had left. This ends tape number four of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. You can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Still, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.